This is Radiance Tape Number JD120, a message by Jim Durkin entitled, The Word of God. Now, I think one of the main problems that keeps Christians from ever coming to a place of fulfillment, endlessly frustrated, never seeing completed any real work in their lives, that they can say, God did this, or God called me to this, and I've gone along this path, and I've seen the fulfillment of what God said, is that they do not understand the power of the written Word of God. They do not understand that everything that we know about Jesus is revealed to us by the written Word of God. That everything we know about the heart of the Eternal Father is revealed to us by the written Word of God. That God has depended on the written Word as it's made alive to us by the Holy Spirit to reveal all that can be known in this life about God. Now, that being the case, then we need to honestly know what that written word is, what the word itself says about the word, and how to utilize it in our life so that what God wants for us will really take place in our lives. Now, for years, I depended on subjective feelings. I thought them to be a higher revelation to me than the written word. So as I gave some credence to the Word of God, but I really depended upon the subjective revelation. I have a feeling that God wants me to do this. Or a voice spoke to me. Many people are caught up in voices speaking. I heard this voice speak to me, and I believe it was God, and God told me to do such and such. Now I've come to hold all of those subjective feelings in low regard, and all of those subjective voices in low regard, and if I do not see that confirmation in God's Word, then I'm very suspect of any kind of subjective voices or feelings. They simply have to be measured by the Word of God. And the Bible tells us as much. It tells us that the Word of God is a true frame of reference. And this is true where it speaks in Peter, and it says to us that these apostles had seen the Lord Jesus Christ personally. But it says, you have a more sure word of prophecy, whereby you do well to take heed. Now, I believe, it's amply backed up by Scripture, that the Word of God, our Bible, expressed, and the mind of God expressed on every possible subject that can have importance to us as saints of the living God. The Bible says he has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So there's nothing that he has not given us. We have all things that pertain. Another place he says, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here again we see God saying it is through these great and precious promises. Well, where are the promises to be found? Once again, in the Word of God. Everything is to be found. That We have no understanding of God or His Son or His grace or His action or what is to come or what is taking place, except we go back to the Word of God for it. And this is very important to have that kind of attitude. 
the Word of God, the heart of God, the mind of God expressed on every subject that is of importance to us. There are many subjects the Word of God does not cover or deal with at all, and this has confounded the minds of scientists. There are many things in the Word of God that are scientifically accurate, and it's just been in late years that scientists, by constant research, have discovered the absolute accuracy of the Word of God. So as they learn more and more, they come back to the accuracy of the Word of God whenever it speaks on scientific subjects. But it never speaks on scientific subjects for the sake of speaking on scientific subjects. It merely brings it in at some point to help in another point. But the idea of the Word of God is designed to express the heart of a loving father or a just judge to his children or to a world that is lost and needs to come out of that darkness into marvelous light. So the Word of God then once again expresses God's purpose, mind, heart, life, principles about the world itself, the universe in which we live, and our way to heaven so that we'll know that way to heaven. Now, why the Word of God? Simply because we are so programmed by the God of this world, he has so perverted the truth of God's Word that our minds are filled with so much that is contrary to God's truth that we are not able to hear God's voice clearly. We simply are not. And though God speaks to us in many ways, Unless we have the Word of God to constantly refer back to and confirm that, we are not able to know God. Now, the Bible in the book of Romans tells us clearly that we are able to know God's eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without excuse. And yet, how many people, if you spoke to them, would say that they knew that God existed, or they knew His eternal power and Godhead? Most of them would deny it. They'd say, I don't know if there is a God, or I don't know if anybody could ever know that there is a God. Yet the Word of God is very clear. So much is it clear on this point that what it really says is these people are without excuse because they may know God by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Simply, that they could look at the stars and know that God exists. They could look at the things that are made on the earth and know that God exists. They could look at a single human and know that God exists. And yet, our minds have been so perverted and twisted that though that voice, the Bible says, is very clear to us, coming from the things that are made, yet very few men really hear it without being totally confused. No, we need something that speaks very clearly to us and never changes its point of view. And that something is the Word of God. And we need it, because without that, I will never be able to find out God. It is only as God reveals himself to me by speaking that I can hear him. And the speaking he has done is through holy men of God. As they spoke, being moved upon by the Holy Ghost, they put down the heart and the mind of God perfectly. And this word, throughout the ages, has been used by God to bring revival again and again, to call whole nations back to repentance, to save thousands upon thousands, yea, millions upon millions of people. And this Word of God is still being used today. Now, what attitude should we have toward the Word of God? Well, the attitude that a Christian needs toward the Word of God is to accept it 
for what it says it is, the Word of God. Now, let's draw a parallel here or a little story. Suppose somehow God were to manifest himself in this room, and we were convinced it was the Lord, and he manifests himself, either through a great burst of his glory or somehow a manifestation of Jesus Christ, God's eternal begotten Son, and he would begin speaking to us. Now, we'd say, oh, now we're hearing God's word, and we would listen very carefully to that. If this manifestation would come to us and we were convinced it was Jesus, and Jesus would say, I want you to go and do these things, or I want you to be this kind of a person, we'd say, I heard God's word on that subject. Well, certainly. And we all know what it means to hear a person's word. If I'm speaking, and I give you my heart on that subject, I give you the very deep thing that I believe on a subject, you can say, I heard the word of Jim Durkin on that subject. That's what he believes, that's what he feels, that's what he knows to be right, and he's expressed himself to me. I can depend that that's what he thinks and feels. Well, now you see, that's what God's word is. It's what God thinks, and what God feels, and what God knows to be right. And we need to hear God's written word in exactly the same way that we would hear the living word spoken if Jesus would appear to us in the room. And that's why Peter said, we saw him on the holy mount. They're very clear, they saw him. They heard the voice of the eternal father. They saw the only begotten son speaking with Moses and with Elijah. Marvelous thing. But they said, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, what could be more sure than hearing God speak right out of the heavens? Well, my natural mind would tell me nothing could be more sure than that. But this great apostle, filled with the Holy Spirit and writing the words of God down for us, said, there is something more sure that you do well to give heed to. It is the written word of God. Now, that's the attitude we need to have, that when we are hearing the Word of God, whether someone is reading it to us, or we're reading it ourselves, or we're hearing it on tape, if it's the Word of God, we need to turn our hearts in such a way that we're saying, I'm hearing the Word of God. And I listen carefully. Jim, what you're saying makes the Bible seem alive and seem real to me, it makes me want to search it out and, and hear the voice of God, hear what God has to say to me. And yet sometimes I experience this, and I know many Christians experience this, that, that the Bible's a dry book or it's a textbook, or the only things you can get out of there are like surface things, you know, what are the Beatitudes saying, or uh, what's this verse saying, or I guess I better find out the Hebrew or the Greek about that, but what you're talking about is something intense about what you're saying about the Word of God. Why is it that Christians experience this? Why don't all people see it this way? Well, I believe it's a matter of teaching. That we are fundamentally taught there is a difference between the written Word of God and the Logos of God, which most of us would say would be the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly He is the Logos of God. But the written Word of God when it is made alive by the Holy Spirit, is the living Word of God. 
And that's why Jesus, when he spoke to us, he said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. It was not just like when you hear them from me, they are spirit and life. It was the words that were spirit and life because they expressed the heart of God himself. And the majority of teaching tends to make a difference between the written word and the spoken word as though they were really two different things altogether. And they're not two different things. The written word, when we approach it with a heart attitude that says, I'm hearing my eternal Father speak to me now. And when we really say in our hearts as we approach the word of God, Father, speak to me. I wish to hear you. I've seen time and time again the Word of God literally come alive. First time this happened to me, I was going through a very trying experience, and uh, I didn't know where to turn for answers, and I turned to the Word of God. And I know now it was the Spirit of God leading me, and uh, I found the answer in the book of Psalms. And someone told me that the Word of God could come alive to me like that, but I had not had the experience. So I believed it in a way, but the main thing was I attempted it to see if it would come alive. And it did. In the 10th chapter of Psalms, it said, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. And that verse was not a verse to me. It literally leapt out of the scripture at me. And I heard my eternal father say, I've heard the desire of the humble. I will prepare your heart. And I was at peace. All of that trouble was gone in a moment of time. The word of God written is the living word, the same as the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth. Notice what he said about himself. He said not only were the words that he spoke spirit and life, but he said the words that I speak to you I do not speak of myself. It is the Father that dwelleth within me that doeth the works. So he literally realized it was the Father in him who was speaking. Well, now it is the Father in the written word that is literally speaking to us by means of the Holy Spirit. And if we'll take that attitude, then we'll find the living word of God and the written word will have exactly the same meaning to us both. Now, there's an attitude that we need to look at here, and it's a scripture that I've pondered much. It's to be found again in Peter, and it's where Peter is speaking to the church at large. Now, I always thought he was speaking at this particular time just to babes. You know, and we think a, a newborn babe, certainly, they're just newly born and so forth. But he's speaking to the church at large, to the saints scattered abroad. And he says to them, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, here I thought he was referring to, like, very young Christians. But he cannot be referring to very young Christians because he's writing to the whole church. What he's referring to, as a newborn babe desires the sincere milk of food, so we should have the same desire toward the Word of God. And so literally we desire more of it to be fed thereby, and the result is we grow thereby. But many have a very low estimate of the written word of God, and so they don't pay much attention to it. They will set through a sermon, but they wish they didn't have to many times. Very bad attitude, which has been engendered by separating the living word from the written word. Or they read the word of God, 
And many people, of course, have said, well, it's the way I go to sleep at night. I read the Word for two or three minutes and I pass off right to sleep, puts me to sleep. Well, of course, the Word of God should be an exciting book to us. And for the most part, it is to most of us who have the right kind of teaching. But it's that basic separation that puts that particular problem in our lives. Jim, you've mentioned twice, a moment ago you said that we need to turn our hearts in such a way to hear God speaking through his word, and also when you quoted the scripture from Peter, desiring the sincere milk of the word, that we should have that desire. How do we get that desire? Is it strictly a matter of teaching? It's not just a matter of teaching, although teaching shows the person the way, and that's the value of teaching. But teaching by itself does nothing more than show the person the way. Now, the minute a man determines to do the will of God and is taught that the will of God is expressed by the word of God, then if he makes up his mind to do that word as best he understands it, the word of God literally will become alive because he will see God come into his life in very powerful ways. You'll see God actually intervene in all kinds of circumstances. And then an excitement begins to arise in him to want to do the Word of God and want to know what is in the Word of God. The written Word of God, therefore, comes to a higher level in his understanding of the value of it. Now, what actually brings the Word of God powerfully alive is the attitude that we have toward it. If we lack the attitude but still have the belief that it is the Word of God, even though in our minds there may be a difference. But Jesus said, if any man will do the will of God, he shall know of the doctrine that I speak, whether it be of God or of men. See, as long as it's taught that it has low value to him, and he's waiting for a subjective voice or feeling, then he will not pay much attention to the written Word of God. And that's exactly what Satan wants him to do, is come to that place where... The written word is downgraded, and he's waiting for subjective feelings, because he can be deceived by those subjective feelings. He will never be deceived by the written word of God. It stands firm throughout all ages. So what a man must do then, as he hears the teaching, he determines to put it in practice as best he understands it. And the minute he does that, God, to give him encouragement, comes into his life and begins to work things in his life. He sees God. And the result is that he becomes excited about the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that he will not, as he goes along, have battles in which he becomes discouraged. But the Holy Spirit will be faithful to recall to him what happened when he took hold of the Word of God and did it, and he'd be called again and again to begin practicing the Word of God. And it's vitally important in our thinking, what God has shown me, shown all of us, that it is the practice of the Word of God that is important, and not merely the reading of it, although the reading itself is powerful. It seems like one reason that the Word of God doesn't have the effect in people's lives that it can is because they rely on feelings and not on what the Word of God says. Because you see people who study the Word, really study it, and get into the Hebrew and the Greek, even people who aren't Christian. And yet it it's obvious that it, for as much as they're studying the Word, and I've met people, I've met Christians who know, in one sense, know the Word. They know scriptures, they know verses, they know the breakdown of chapters, and they know Greek and Hebrew. And yet it's really obvious that the Word of God isn't affecting their life. They aren't changed. 
Well, here again, I think it's as many times we've remarked. The Word of God is not a textbook. It's not a book of do's and don'ts, though there are some things in it that says do this or don't do that, but that's not primarily what it is. And if a person thinks that's what it is, then they read only very small segments of the Word of God to find out what the do's and don'ts are, and they think, well, that way I'll please God if I do this and refuse to do that. But that's only a very small part of the Word of God, and those will not have meaning in themselves until you understand the sweep of the Word of God. No, it's like growing up in a family. And let's say you've got a father, well-beloved. He's a great man in the sight of the child. Well, it isn't important to the child to have a list of 50 do's and 50 don'ts. That isn't what the child wants. He pretty well knows what his father permits and what his father does not permit. But what has happened in the child is he wants to please his father. Some attitude has changed in the child from a totally self-centered little baby to where as a young growing man, he wants to please his father. He wants to honor that relationship. Now, it is not the matter of do's and don'ts which has produced this. There's something in the sweep of the father's life that has caught the imagination of the child. And the child wants to be like his father. He wants to please him. He wants to bless him. He wants to help him any way that he possibly can. Well, the Word of God is designed to do that for us. Now, if we do what so many people do, keep breaking it down smaller and smaller pieces. Now, we do not mean that a person cannot make a minute study of the Word of God. But that's almost like a thing they should do much later. What's needed is to read the Word of God as the Word of God and watch God in the affairs of men's life. David, a young man, see the sweep of God in his life. Or God coming to Abraham and the birth of a nation taking place because God enters in and performs miracles and wonders and signs. Or the people of Israel captured in Egypt. And then God raises up a single man and says, Go to my people and set them free. And I will be a voice to you, and so forth, speaking to the people of Egypt, speaking to the people of Israel. And they voice how God was heard, and how he backed it up with signs and wonders, and how they crossed the Dead Sea, and then through the desert, through the River Jordan, into the Promised Land, and the great... We want to see the sweep of God moving. And then something comes alive in us. We want to know more about this wonderful God. We want to know his ways. We want to know his teaching. We want to know his thoughts. We want to know what he wants for our lives. See, that's what has to happen. And sometimes when we're breaking the word of God down further and further without that sweep of the majesty of God taking hold of us, the breakdown doesn't tell us anything. It's just more do's and don'ts. And that's a very small part of the word of God. And we don't even know why we shouldn't do some things. But once we're caught up with the holiness of God and the beauty of that holiness, we begin to read a word like that and think, God is holy, and he wants us to be holy. And we're caught with that. Then we want to be like that God. And then his word is a living thing to us, no longer a textbook, dry. But it's a vital thing we want to read and be a part of. I think one of the important things we need to look at is how the word of God was held in regard in the minds of men of God of times past. And I think you merely need to take our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
And he constantly quotes the Scripture, and he said in one place, you know the Scripture cannot be broken. Meaning, the Word of God spoke 500 years ago, or 3,000 years ago, or 1,600 years ago, then that Word is unchanged today. And we can call upon it at any time, knowing it will be exactly the same, because God spoke that Word. The book of Matthew is filled with references that Jesus did this, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet saying. Everywhere we see this word of God is constantly referred to by our Lord Jesus Christ as the base for everything that he did. It is also true of the apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He stands up and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The great apostle James, when he was called upon to make a decision which would affect the entire church for generations to come, harkens back to the great prophet Amos and said, here's my sentence. And then he quotes from Amos as the basis for this great sentence, which set the Gentile church free and gave direction to the Jewish church at that particular time, making them all one. So everywhere Paul did this, he said, I speak nothing except that which was spoken by the fathers. So we find this constant reference of great men of God back to the scriptures. But then take a look at David. The whole 119th Psalm is literally filled with references like this. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Great is thy word. Or the word of the Lord came, and great was the company of those who published the word. These men constantly reiterated that position, that the word of God was of supreme importance to them in their thinking. Moses understood that. Abraham understood that. And I think we need to have a revelation of that today. Solomon said of the making of books, there is no end. And it seems like today, if we have anything in the church, we've got an abundance of books on every subject imaginable. And yet, where's the power? Where's the change? And where's the transformation? I think another reference point would be the final words of our Lord Jesus. He said, I have many things to say to you, but he could not say them at that time. They were not ready to hear those things. First place, they had not been filled with the Holy Spirit, and the great things that the Lord Jesus would do later on, this powerful things that would happen through their ministries and their lives were not yet evident. But he said, I am going away. The crucifixion was ahead of him. The resurrection was ahead of him. I am going away, but he said, I will not leave you alone. I will send to you the Spirit of truth, and he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then he went further, and he said, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will take the things of mine and reveal them unto you. And I think what a marvelous thing, this reference of the Lord Jesus to the coming Spirit of truth, or God's Holy Spirit, and what would the Holy Spirit do? but take the written word of God and make it alive to us so it would live in our hearts, and then we would be able to do the same things that our Lord Jesus Christ did. And I think if this thing can be understood, that all through the ages, the examples we have in the word of God is that the men of God, the Lord Jesus himself, and the blessed Holy Spirit have one important thing that they're trying to bring to us, the value of the word of God as the transforming agent in our life. No wonder God said through the Apostle Peter that he has given us all things 
that pertain unto life and godliness. And by these exceeding great and precious promises, you can become partakers of the divine nature. I've had the opportunity in speaking to people and sharing with them about the Lord and about taking the Bible and really using the Word of God to, to change their lives, that, that they'll acknowledge a scripture when it speaks of the Word of God being able to, to give you everything you need to, to godliness. However, they'll find it very hard to see how a book, as they'll view it initially written 2,000 years ago, is going to help them in their daily life when they have to go to work and put on their, their white-collar job and, and the, the housewife who's home with the three kids and the, the teenager who's mm -hmm. getting into all kinds of trouble. And What do you say to somebody like that regarding the Word of God? I think you must always say to them what the Lord Jesus told us because he spoke the Word of God. And what he told us is he that will do the will of God will know whether or not the teaching that he gave was of God or of men. And no man has ever yet elected to do the word of God that did not find ample confirmation that God was in that word operating in his life. Now, I think people need to understand that the word of God, the Bible, is a timeless book. That's why Jesus hundreds of years after certain statements were made, could quote those statements as being valid in his day. He who knew all things, it was valid in his day hundreds of years later. Paul, speaking another 60, 40, 30 years after that, was able to say, I speak nothing except that which has been taught by the fathers. All of these men realized that the word of God was unchangeable. The reason being that God is revealing things that concern themselves with the very fundamental principles of the whole universe, the very fundamental principles of living. It doesn't have anything to do with what the particular country that a person is living in, or the particular time of life that he's living in, or the particular cultural background, the ethnic aspects of his life, the color of his skin. Because God is not speaking to such superficial things, though these are very powerful forces in our life. But God is not speaking to that. He's speaking to the deepest part of the nature of man, where all the trouble really comes from. Our deep spiritual being that's been twisted and perverted and hurt and scarred by the things that are in this world. And the Bible tells us the Word of God is quick. Now that word quick really means alive. And it's powerful. That means dynamically powerful, movingly powerful, so that it's able to penetrate past our minds, and past our emotional natures, into the spirit, where it changes a man. Now, once he's changed there, he can meet with new clarity, because his mind will have a clarity it never had before. His emotions will be, in a sense, directed by the Holy Spirit in a way that he's never known them before. And things that literally filled him with fear, or things that literally filled him with anger, no longer have the same power to do that because the Word of God has come alive within him, and it's giving him a power that he has never known before. So he's able to solve his problems in a way he never knew before. He is able to call on God and have the power of God work in him in a way he never knew before. And I tell you that the Word of God, being a timeless book, is just as good for the white-collar worker in a high-pressure office situation, or a door-to-door -door salesman having to make his living that way, or a bricklayer on the streets, or a ditch digger, 
or a person in South America or Central America or a person in Africa that's never even seen a school, the same Word of God will help him solve his problems. Will not just help him solve his problems, but will show him the way to absolutely solve his problems if he practices. But the key is that he must not just read it. Now, I think this is probably the most important point I could ever make to anyone. Not just read it, but to do it, to practice it. See, the Word of God is designed to call faith out of us. The Word of God is designed to change me from basically an unbelieving person, that is, unbelieving toward the truth of God's Word, to a believing person. And what it's designed to do is to give me a little inkling of something God wants me to do, enough so that I know it's clear enough to make a step. I don't see the full end, but it's clear enough so that I can make a step. And what God is saying to me, come and take the step, son. Make a move, daughter. And if I hear that and I say, Father, I will do it, I will trust that you will be there, that you will not let me down, that it won't fail, I'm going to try it. Then if a man takes that step, he'll find that God is there and that God won't fail him and God won't let him down. And then as he takes one step, he looks back on it and sees that it wasn't really so bad. And the whole Word of God illustrates this. How God called men a step at a time. Gideon would be a typical example. Gideon was afraid. He was hiding. He's an Old Testament character that lived during a time of one of the various invasions and occupations uh, that the enemy had against the people of Israel. And Gideon was threshing wheat, hidden. And the angel appeared to him and said, You mighty man of valor, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel. And he didn't believe that. He was afraid. But we see how God took him step by step, a little bit at a time. And he could look back on each one and say, That wasn't so bad. And then God said, I'm ready for you to take another step. And as he kept practicing the word of God, it ended up that he did exactly what God told him that he would do. He was responsible for the deliverance of the entire nation of Israel and set him back on the path toward God again. So I just see that this point of practicing God's Word is the most important single thing that any man can ever do. And that's what the Bible is, really. It's an action book. It's an adventure book. It's a story book, but not designed to entertain, but designed to excite me to say, Lord, can I do that? And then for the Holy Spirit to point out other places where it says, yes, you can. The things that Jesus did, you can do. Go and do it. The things that Paul did, you can do. Go and do it. The things that David did, you can do. Go and do it. And encourage me to try. And even though I don't understand, understanding is not important. Just belief that if God says it, then I can do it. And to make that attempt. And the minute that I do... That word of God bursts with life and adventure, enters into my spirit and my soul and my mind, and my whole life is transformed as a result of that. When I talk to Christians, especially defeated Christians, it is an attitude of the word speaking something to them that's impossible for them to do, or speaking something that, that they can't do. It seems that there's an area of faith in believing the Word of God, believing that what it speaks for us to do, that it's possible to be done. There's so many defeated Christians that I've spoken to that their final analysis of the Word is, I can't do it. And that's the end result of their lives. 
you see you've made a very important point there. And I want you to think about something for a moment in relationship to that. The thing that defeats them is their intellect. They have examined with their intellectual capacity beforehand. They reached out with their imagination and conjured up a picture of failure. And then their mind analyzes the situation, sees the tremendous difficulties, and turns away from the attempt to do God's word. Now, here again, we have an illustration in Scripture in the Old Testament where the spies under Moses went into the promised land. And God had already told them, I'm going to deliver this land into your hands. You're going to absolutely have this land. It's God who gave the assurance that it would take place. But the spies came back, having projected out with their imaginations, having seen these giants, saw all kinds of slaughter going on toward the children of Israel, and came back literally filled with fear. And they said, truly, it is a land that flows with milk and honey. God has told us the truth there. But said one thing he didn't tell us. Now, here's their evil imaginations working. Here's this frightening perversion that Satan has worked into every one of us unless we're willing to let God wash it away from us by the Word of God, the Spirit of God, that literally these men came back and said, but God really has lied to us. He has not told us the truth. He did not tell us about the giants. He didn't tell us that they literally eat up the land. He didn't literally tell us that the land eats up the inhabitants thereof. He didn't literally say that they were gigantic, huge people and we were like grasshoppers in their sight. He didn't tell us that. And if we go in there, we're going to be killed. And so that evil imagination, evil report spread to all of the children of God, except just a very few, and they would not go in the promised land. And thus they missed this wonderful opportunity. Now, on the other hand, consider a little child. And the Bible tells except we become like little children. We shall in no wise enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is this true, that we must become like a little child? Well, consider a little child when it's about ready to walk. It has never walked. It has no experience of walking. It does not know how to walk. It does not even know the meaning of the word. And yet, the father or mother will stand the child up, point it in the direction of the other parent, and the parent will say, come, walk, and gestures with his hands in a signal to say, come toward me, or it holds its hands out like, I will love you if you come to me, or maybe it holds some toy or trinket out. And the child, not having a well-developed intellectual capacity designed to analyze, and one which has been perverted and twisted by the power of this world, does not stop and think, I've never walked before in my life. I don't know anything about walking. I have no habit background that could tell me I could do this. I see that I could fall on my face. I could break an arm. I could hurt my face. I could... All the things the intellect might do had it been well-developed, but it is not well-developed. What is well-developed is love and trust. The child loves the parent, and the parent is calling it. The child trusts the parent, and the parent is obviously nodding something, you can do it, you can do it. And the little child takes one stumbling step. Now, to be sure, it falls. But once again, it does not immediately get up and then analyze. It cries because it's been hurt, but doesn't analyze the situation, say, aha, my father deceived me. He didn't tell me the truth. My mother's deceived me. She's not telling me the truth. I knew I couldn't walk, and this proves I couldn't walk. But once again, they say, stand up. 
you can do it. And because a child loves its parent and trusts its parent, and there's no conflict with the intellect at this point, it tries it again and again and again and again. And then without ever understanding it or analyzing it, after a little bit of time, because of love and trust, the child is able to run and jump and tumble and climb, and has learned to walk. Still doesn't understand it, but knows how to do it. Now here we're talking about the problem of the defeated Christian. They've used their intellect far too much. They have read the Word of God, and they've stated just exactly what you said, but this is impossible. I can't do this, and thus, like the example of the little child, had he had enough intellect, would have never learned to walk, because he said, this is impossible. I can't do this. But because he loved and trusted, he was able to do it. Believe the Father. Now, the same thing must be true of us today. We have an intellect developed, but it's a very puny thing compared to the infinite mind of God. And if God, our great eternal Father, says, you can do it, I'll be there to help you, then thank God we can do it. And we need to lay our intellectual minds to rest on this point and simply do, in other words, have that same love and trust that the little child has for its parent when it starts to walk. And we'll find out after a little bit of time without still understanding it, maybe. We're able to run, mount up with wings like an eagle, fly, do anything God told us that we can do. Now, we've been dealing a little bit with the idea of becoming like a little child. And we mentioned earlier how Peter told the people, as newborn babes, they were to desire the sincere milk of the Word. They were to yearn after that Word, and then we see that a person should practice the Word of God. Jesus was very clear on this point when he said, He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, that is the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now the other man, the foolish man, was merely stated as one who heard the Word but did it not. So the real key here is the doing of the Word, because we love and trust God. We don't try to analyze it or figure it out. We simply trust God and do what He says to do. Now, there's a danger, though, even when we have committed ourselves to the Word of God, to do it, that our minds, having been trained in this satanically perverted world, our minds are filled with deliberately introduced misconceptions about every important word and concept that God will use in his teaching. For instance, one of the brethren pointed out that one of the beautiful concepts of Scripture is the word peace. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you'll find peace. And it even describes it as the peace that passes understanding, but that part of it is not read, not about the passes understanding. Just the word peace is read by the, the intellectual perverted mind. And it interprets it in terms of what it understands peace to be. Well, that means a life free from pressure, a life free from hassles, a life free from monetary restraints. Just everything that our human hearts, carnally directed minds could desire, that's our idea of peace. Then we think we see ourselves in an imaginary picture settling back with balmy breezes, a beautiful home, and our wife or husband agreeing with us totally, our children coming along perfectly, no problems. And that's our idea of peace. And yet the Bible 
has no definition of peace like this at all. It speaks about a peace that passes understanding, a peace that can operate within us when everything is going wrong, when our children are not quite following the instruction that they should, or maybe even are rebelling against the teaching and the instruction of their father and mother, or when monetarily we're upset and we're really pressured, or circumstances are coming down upon us, or we could even be imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, suffering tremendously, and yet we can have peace. But you see, if we do not come to God with a lack of preconceived notions, or at least an attitude in our hearts saying, Lord, Help me to overcome these preconceived ideas. I know my mind is filled with all these ideas, so I'm going to come to you and I'm going to present myself and cause me to become like a little child so I can hear your word for the first time, really hear it. Now, if we do that, really come to God, somehow the miracle takes place. And little by little, God unwinds the convoluted twists of our mind. The devil has put us through, and our mind begins to straighten out, and we hear the word of God in purity. Now, I cannot impress upon anyone listening to this teaching, I cannot impress too strongly this concept that John, the great apostle, said the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, or as the King James says, in the lap of wickedness. It's almost like a picture of Satan sitting down in a chair or a throne because he's referred to in the Bible as the God of this world system or the God of this world. And he's sitting in his throne and he has the whole world in his lap and he controls them. And he's instructing them very carefully. He knows what's in the Word of God and he's very carefully instructing them in such a way that he perverts and twists their mind completely away from that which is real and that which is truth. And let us not think that we by ourselves are able to know right from wrong. It takes a good operating conscience. It takes a revelation of the Word of God. It takes the Spirit of God to ever make us know right from wrong. Otherwise, we do not know it naturally. Now consider, for instance, a child. If you tell a child that the moon is made out of green cheese, the child doesn't automatically know that that's false. Or if you tell a child that 2 and 2 is 27, he doesn't know that that's false. It will take much later teaching to even convince him that that's false if his parents would steadfastly say to him, no, it is true. These things which we told you are true. And if they keep insisting that it's true, it will be years and years and years before the child will ever even begin to doubt that his mother and father have told him anything but the truth. Now, we're raised in this satanic world. And our minds are literally filled with things contrary to the truth. And Satan keeps insisting that what he has taught us is the truth. And we have no way of knowing other than that unless we simply come to God and say, Lord, make me like a little child, ready to learn again. Take away these preconceived notions and let me read your word with purity. And if we do that, little by little, the great truth of God's word will emerge. Now, we're far better off, however, if... We are blessed of God enough to set on a good, sound teaching of the Word, which can take you from the beginning and say, no, this is a preconceived notion. It is not according to the Word of God. You must drop this concept and accept the truth of God's Word. Now, if we have a teacher that can insist that we do these things and help us and carry us along, 
if we're in a proper relationship to the teaching of the Word of God, so that we submit our lives to the authority of God and to His Word and to the godly elders that are set over us in God, then our progress will be much, much faster. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. But my prayer is for each of us that we realize that we are no longer in the lap of the wicked one, that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we have the supreme and wonderful privilege of having our minds cleared for all time of all these things contrary to the truth and walking in the pure light of God's word.